0: Corporate Unplugged opens the door to a world of people transforming business. They share their dreams, their experiences, and what they would never give up. I'm so glad to have uh, John Milton here with me from uh, Colorado. Welcome to my podcast, John. Great to be here. Thank you. And I'm so grateful that our thoughts have uh, crossed. And that's actually thanks to our joint friend, Martin Lindstrom. John Milton is an explorer and a true pioneer. He is a professor of environmental studies and has written books on ecology and environmental conservation. And in the mid-1960s, he played a key role in fathering the environmental movement. Uh, He also helped author one of the earliest publications on the threat of rising global carbon dioxide levels. And in 1963 already, the publication received a major public attention and served to extensively widen cultural awareness of this immense problem. Starting very young, he pioneered bringing the ancient vision quest into a modern one called The Way of Nature. It's a quest on how to connect to the three natures, the outer, inner, and true. John Milton is one of the truly important teachers today. He has a unique capacity to help people into an encounter with nature that catalyzes their deepest sense of purpose and their innate capacities as uh, leaders. So John, I would... Love to uh, start off by asking you about your passion. You know, what is that passion that comes from the Latin word patire that 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 thing that you are also willing to suffer for if needed?
1: (laughs) Well, I guess uh, a lifelong passion has really been to help people reconnect to nature and to experience being part of nature as a big like a big family. I come from a background that um, I, I was raised on a farm in New Hampshire, an organic farm in the uh, quite a long number of years ago. I'm going on 83 now. And the way I was raised was with a deep reverence and love for nature. My family had very strong indigenous uh, honoring in the family. So we, we were raised with that kind of a consciousness. And as I grew up, I began to realize that people were very disconnected from from nature and in many ways from a deeper level of themselves. So I began to uh, go out and spend time alone in nature and uh, did a version of the Native American Vision Quest at age seven. And that really got me going on a path of trying to provide that experience of deep connection to the rest of life as a foundation for my own work my own life's work.
0: But you when you were 7 that's amazing.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I I began talking to my my parents early on about what I had what I was here for. That was kind of a weird thing for a kid to be doing but apparently I came in with a very clear mission.
0: In in a way I think a lot of people would like envy that because some people very often spend you know more than half of their time to try to figure it out. What mm-hmm. am I here for, right?
1: That's been a great blessing. I've never really had to worry about what to do, yeah. or what uh, what this life is for.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: so it's really been a committed life to truly really try to help bring uh, the human species back into a mm-hmm. deep connection with, with nature. Mm-hmm. And of course, in those days, I didn't know the emergent environmental crisis that was on the way. For the uh, tremendous challenges we would have with climate change issues, as such as now, but I think I came in maybe at a time that was well suited to try to help catalyze mm. some of the uh, preparatory shift of culture to move in that direction to deal with these major environmental and planetary issues.
0: Mm. And you were really uh, a true pioneer. I mean, given that already during the '60s you were you were working on these environmental issues in a very constructive, uh, actionable yeah, way.
1: There actually was no word environment in the early 60s. Yeah. There was no movement. Hmm. So I pulled together some gatherings, at a place called Early House in Virginia, where we, the first one was to coin the term environment as a word to describe the natural system of which we were a part. The culture I those was mostly talking about nature in terms of resources, what you could take from the forest, what you could take from uh, the earth in the way of mining and minerals, what you can take from uh, soil and agriculture. So it was a taker-based mentality. There was no sense of really being a partner with nature as a kind of a co-family member. And my own experience with the Vision Quest experience was it really initiated me into being deeply, deeply connected to the rest of life. So I wanted to find a word that would give that same experience of being part of a natural system. And the word environment seemed to be the best one.
0: But when you look at what's going on today, I mean, every single person I meat is talking about not climate change but rather climate crisis and everything that is going on and there are huge conferences and everybody wants the best and is talking about it in a clever smart intellectual way etc but at the end of the day there's so much more that should happen not not in 10 years 20 years like now so are you still hopeful
1: the planet in some form or other, it, it will, it will survive.
0: survive. Exactly. The real
1: question is what happens to our species and and human beings as a species in the context of all of nature. Yeah. Of what kind of human is going to survive this, if if any at all? So the the issue on the table is really how do we how do we shift our culture from a taker type of mentality mm-hmm. where we only go to nature to take take take? How do we come into nature as a part as a full fledged family member? Mm-hmm. of a natural system, both global and regional. We've begun to get a good shift of, uh, since we got the environmental movement going in the 60s, uh, and it was a very small group of us that really birthed it. Part of my main job was just getting the language correct, mm-hmm. So we got a whole system perspective going with the word environment.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But since then, uh, in the early days, we had a very strong focus on decentralization mm-hmm. and regional initiatives as being key just as nature is decentralized and uh, has a a strong regional basis based often on things like watersheds and natural boundaries. So we envisioned a kind of environmental movement that would help provide a lot of the answers to a new type of relationship with nature based on local ecosystem harmony and balance and coming into a, a much deeper understanding of the kind of natural regions around which all of life gathers, like mm-hmm. watersheds. Mm-hmm. And uh, this decentralized approach also meant that power, like renewable energy, we talked a great deal about solar energy, wind power, mm-hmm. mini hydro in those days, all of those were decentralized power systems. And so the idea was that local towns, communities, farms, ranches, could have their own source of power, have their own, their own capacity to produce the basics of food, uh, energy, water, so that it, just like nature does, the entire system of coming back into balance would be a decentralized system. Yeah. Now, at what I've noticed since the modern environmental movement and climate crisis has come into um, sharp focus, that decentralized aspect of the original environmental movement has been lost. Mm. Now we're talking about big power companies. How do you gather big, build big solar farms, big uh, solar captured capacities, big wind farms? And we're not talking so much about local and decentralized application at the local ecosystem level, in the local community, human community level. Mm. Personally, I think this is a gigantic mistake. We must learn how to come back into into balance and harmony with local systems. And through that, if we do that effectively at the local level, the the larger global system will naturally begin to come into greater balance and harmony.
0: I'm thinking about the kind of general rule that is out there also generally in business um, that we first have to kind of stimulate growth all the time, but we are not like nurturing the core. Of a company, of of generally thinking about, you know, why does it even exist? Uh, uh, is the world better off because this company and its services, etc., products even exist? Right. So the whole system we've created is so much around growing, scaling, moving, speeding, without this kind of sense of deep reflection, actually. Uh, and that's, I guess, something that we also see, obviously, uh, as a result now with these environmental challenges, also that it's all about quantity and speed.
1: Correct. Yeah, I'd say that um, that's another side of the the situation that we're in that has been neglected a bit. Mm. Uh, What you're speaking to is very, very important because one of the things that's pure gold for most companies is creativity. Creativity around uh, new ways to organize and arrange the market, creativity around new kinds of products that are in harmony with the rest of life and, and nature. Creativity that helps to begin to define a focus for a company that really is in harmony with the larger uh, system of which you're a part. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the things that I've been spending a lot of time in the past few years is working with leaders from different companies and different Mm -hmm. uh, organizations around the planet to help put them through a process where they tap into a much deeper level of very pure creativity. Mm -hmm. out of which many of these answers and new initiatives can arise.
0: How do you do that, John?
1: Well, I take them into nature, and uh, I give them a very simple training, which is based upon many of the great traditions of the planet that have helped uh, many many cultures go deep into a connection with themselves, with their own nature, their own true nature, with Mm -hmm. uh, all the aspects of their personality and their being, And then at the same time, it gives them a chance to connect to outer nature in a a really new way, in a fresh way. I give them a chance to be in solitude for up to a week at a time. For some of the longer programs, and some of the shorter ones are more like just a few days to, to half a week of solitude in nature. But they're in a safe place. They're in a small group that never sees each other during the solo time. And during that period, because they're out of contact With human culture, human culture kind of falls away and they actually drop back into a much more intimate relationship with the birds, with the animals, with the plants, with the sky, with the earth, with all the elements of nature. And they begin to have uh, kind of an experience of profound connection with, with nature. Out of that profound connection with outer nature and also with inner nature and their true nature this immense wave of creativity begins to rise. And many people come out of this with deep issues and problems resolved and all kinds of creative ideas about how they would like to have their life go in the future. And often that creativity is providing solutions to many of the crises that we have today about being out of balance and out of harmony with the planet. They It naturally begins to support coming up with creative insight about what to do, how their company could be slightly uh, shifted in a a new direction that would be beneficial economically to them, but at the same time provide an initiative that um, helps uh, bring their company into the team of companies that are helping to bring about a a greater balance with the overall planet between humans and the planet. Mm. So it's very exciting work, and Mm. uh, I've had hundreds, if not thousands, of people in leadership positions go through it mm. at this point.
0: I envision all the leaders I know out in the woods or out in the nature with you. That would be wonderful. <laughs> but what is what is uh, the potential challenge for people who want to go but maybe they don't go anyways? Is it because they're afraid of something or do you do you see that?
1: There are there are some fears. Um Initially, I thought the fear would be because they don't have a lot of contact with nature in an intimate way,
0: mm-hmm.
1: that they would be afraid of, um, of things in nature. And uh, But actually, what I discovered was the biggest fear was being alone without the support of their digital devices, because they can't take a yeah. computer or a cell phone or anything like that, all that's left behind Mm-hmm. So you go directly into the original type of connection all of us have had as humans. So one of the first things we do is to ask people to look deeply into the, the source of the, some of the fears that they may have or some of the resistances. Usually what happens is uh, the first stage of the process is people are drawn to doing this because at some level of their being, you know, this is an incredibly powerful process that will open up the doors of all kinds of new insights and realizations and a certain kind of liberation from their past lives and the suffering that they've been through. And once they make that commitment, then all the reasons that you should not do it begin to come to the surface.
0: Mm.
1: It's just natural. Mm. I'm sure you've experienced that with things that um, maybe not like this, but in other areas where all the reasons you might be wanting to do something that's really beneficial but then all the reasons later on, once you've made that commitment, come right up in your face and you have to deal with it somehow. Now, often that when those things come up, then you give in and you say, okay, well, I guess it's not the time or you have some excuse, right? Mm-hmm. So we make clear that these things are going to come up as soon as you commit yourself. And that is part of the growth process to go through those shadow aspects of ourselves, liberate those shadows so you can make a full commitment. And you also honored the shadows that have come up that provide the natural resistance to taking that deep dive into inner, outer, and true nature. And then once you arrive, then you go. We provide a, a very simple training based on many cultures, cultures, um, processes of how to go deep into again outer nature, inner nature, and true nature. That training process gives them a set of practices and principles to work with which they can then take into their time of solitude. In the original, originally we used to call that third part of the process, the solitary time, the period of the solo. But we, I changed the term from solo to the all one time. Because the experience people came back with was not of solitude and being alone, but of being profoundly connected to everything else. Mm Beautiful. We changed it to the old one-time solo. So that's the third part of the process. And then the fourth part is they come back out. We begin to share together as a community with a very open-hearted sharing as a community that have gone through a a common ground kind of experience. And uh, we begin to prepare people to learn how to integrate what they've received creatively and in terms of insight and liberation from some of the past Material that they've been able to transform. Uh, How to make that, how to integrate that and make it more stable in their lives so it continues to benefit for a long period of time. And uh, that's the fourth stage of the process. And then the fifth stage is we, maybe two weeks later, we get together again using something like Zoom to see how things have gone when you go back into the family back into the workplace, back into meeting your enemies, back into meeting your friends and your loved ones. All the stuff that, in a sense, is the opportunity or the invitation or the challenge to bring what you've gained through this profound connection to the three natures. How do you bring that out into your normal life flow and and adapt and apply this immense creativity that's opened up into this new, uh, new normal life flow that you have had for obviously your life many people's lives change pretty profoundly in a good in a very good way.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and so it has a five-stage part of the process. We call it the way of nature you process. Mm-hmm.
0: Fantastic. Uh, but but you're doing this uh, also in some countries here in Europe.
1: Our group is called the Way of Nature. You can find it by looking up wayofnature.com. Right now it's a um, it's a group of like-minded uh, Souls that are on a journey together in this way.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: We're just now in the process of opening up to much larger membership
0: Mm
1: -hmm. and doing a new website, so the whole thing is about to go much more global. Mm -hmm. But in the meantime, we have some really wonderful regional groups that have kind of self-formed themselves because they're very excited about what this can this has done for them, and they would like to share it with others. Mm -hmm. So we have groups in. uh, with local leadership, and I've trained many of the leaders to continue doing this process in these regional areas. Mm-hmm. Very often, they're, they're led by certified uh, people to run these programs. And we do them in uh, Sweden. In uh, We've done a little bit in Norway. Uh, Holland has been very active. We've done quite a few programs in Austria and had German participation via mm-hmm. Austria. Uh, More recently, uh, again, we're beginning to do programs in Spain. We've done some in in, uh, uh, Slovenia and in France. But I'd say a lot of it's been in Europe. But at the same time, we also have had major initiatives in Brazil, in Argentina, in Chile, in Mexico, and more recently beginning in Taiwan and China. So it's, it's, it's already a bit of a global process. Mm-hmm. and uh, it's been exciting to see it kind of pop up uh, uh, when it's under its own steam this way. I haven't really tried to make that happen. It's really come from the people who've gone through the process here in, uh, in Colorado or in Arizona. We do programs in Colorado, Arizona, and Baja California, and occasionally in, in uh, Costa Rica as well. And out of that have come many people who have taken it back to their home area, and then they've gotten very excited about seeing it get started in their their own home place. Uh, one of the great opportunities we have now, of course, for for companies and for businesses, and I'm glad to see that uh, Joe Biden is talking about this. Some, um, we have a gigantic opportunity for a, a reborn global and local economies, because the kind of um, birth of new New approaches, new new technologies, uh, new social systems to bring about a kind of culture that's in balance with the rest of life and bring about renewable energy systems instead of fossil fuel based. That alone could lead to a massive uh, rebirth of new, new companies, new economies, new fiscal energy in a really good direction. My only warning would be that we really need to not just pay attention to these highly centralized systems of coming back into balance. We need to learn how to make it more decentralized and more regionalized according to natural bioregions. That's been neglected.
0: I mean, business is, is, you could say, the first to suffer when society does not function. Uh, I mean, it cannot succeed in societies that fail. But still, as you say, we are moving so slowly, and there is a huge crisis of moral leadership. I would say, where where people have put their interests of themselves ahead of the you know common good. How how and why is it like that?
1: I think part of it is that we lack the classical rites of passage when we're in our in our teenage years. Have you ever wondered how is it that most indigenous peoples, for example, in North America? Uh, their cultures are intimately and balanced. Mm-hmm. The ethics, the morality, and the goals of the individuals that are part of those cultures are ones that bring that culture into balance and harmony with all of life. How come they're not like greedy taker type of mentalities that you find in in modern society? Money is the, is is the dominant rule, money and power. The reason is. One of the main reasons is, in part, that they're living in much closer to nature and they understand the interactivity between themselves and nature much better than we do. And secondly, or maybe primarily, these are cultures that have a rite of passage, uh, which is called the vision quest, which virtually every member of the culture goes through, usually in their teenage years. When you go through a vision question, you do essentially something similar to what I just described that the way of nature does. You go out, you go into a place of solitude in nature that's ideally fairly sacred or considered a sacred piece of nature, area of nature. And you go into nature and you go in a, into a state of deep prayer, meditation, and, uh, and bonding with the rest of life through all your senses. And the, the, the goal is to cry out for a vision of what what this life is for. Who am I? What is this life for? Why am I here? What's the purpose of this life? How can I manifest my deep deepest inner purpose for coming here in this, into this life? And so the young person goes with those questions. And in many, many cases, they had a very clear answer. And based on that, that answer, they're often given even a new name based upon the insights they come from the world of nature and spirit. And uh, when they come back out, they receive, received, they went in as a, as a, uh, a uh, not, not an adult yet, as a young person. And when they come back, they're brought back into their culture as a full-fledged adult who's received the vision from the inside out of the true purpose of their life. Now, as a result of that, those purposes because of the way in which the process unfolds, almost always is in harmony or supports bringing balance, integration and harmony between themselves and the rest of life. And they, because they have the experience, much like what we train people to do by cultivating the sensorial connection to, to all the elements and to nature, they begin to experience nature as their family the plants, the animals, the forests all the beings of nature are perceived as family members. And obviously they want to do something in life that is in support of the health of their new family member that they've come to know. And when you disconnect from normal human culture for a while and go deep into the world of pure spirit and pure connection to nature, then you you have those insights. Normally human culture blocks you from being able to perceive that way. Because you're so bound up in the human system, but if you drop out of that during that critical period of your life, where you're beginning to find what you're going to do with this lifetime, then you your vision of what this life can can be uh, takes place in the context of a much much greater potential that includes the entire family of life and and maintaining health and balance for that big family. So uh, that's why the Vision Quest is a major contributor to not just to creative insight for, say, your company or organization, as it would be applied in the modern world, but also spiritually realizing that you're part of a vast family of life that you are born out of and that you're working within and that uh, has great potentials for having a lifetime that really is worthwhile. And again, this is one of the reasons I w- I really feel the the rites of passage type of process, in our case, the uh, sacred passage, is a tremendous uh, opportunity. If we could apply that kind of thing in modern culture, it would restructure the goals and the and the uh, the ethical moral context for our modern young people, and for adults that go through it. I've worked with a lot of leaders. They all go through a similar kind of rebirthing process when they go through this. And then from the inside out, this creativity is applied to helping their their organization coming back into greater balance with these immense challenges we face, not just around climate crisis and damage, but water, uh, loss of species diversity, uh, the massive spread of nuclear power plants and nuclear waste materials, like plutonium, which are incredibly toxic and last for hundreds of thousands of years in some cases. We have many crises in addition to the climate crisis which need to be addressed, but they all come back to the same fundamental issue. We must have the experience, not just the knowledge, but the experience of being part of the body of the planet. If we have that, then we, we will treat the planet and um, and our local ecosystems as a part of our own body and our own family. And it's only from that that a revolutionary kind of ethical and moral system can arise. Our current religions are not doing a very good job. Mm. We need to have a new basis.
0: Uh, John, I feel personally that what we lack the most now is really good uh, leadership, uh, what I would call moral leadership. And the second thing, of course, in parallel with that is a new narrative that gives people not just a general dream, but just hope and energy and um, to design a picture of a future we wish to see where we could align and work for for that together. Well,
1: imagine an educational system for young people and leaders that brought together the ecological wisdom that we have begun to accumulate over the years through um, all the good work of of the ecological community. A lot has been learned. That's where much of the climate crisis, change crisis material has come from. Imagine if we brought that together with the experiential wisdom of doing a a contemporary vision quest -like, like immersion in nature along the lines of how most traditional peoples have have always done that. And then brought in a third component, which is tapping into the immense wisdom of indigenous peoples who've lived in harmony with their local ecosystems for often thousands of years. If you bring those three things together, you have the capacity for profound education and transformation of contemporary leadership. Mm -hmm. We're not doing any of that. I wrote a little book called Ecological Principles for Economic Development back in 1973. Uh, it got pretty good attention for a while, but then things sort of drifted away into, into um, back into the same pattern of the taker type of mentality. And um, we, have, we have not yet found a way to bring those three components together. If anything, we've been destroying those components of education, uh, for example, not only are we losing the world's biodiversity, but we're losing the immense wisdom contained within the indigenous cultures that know how to live in harmony with their local ecosystem. That wisdom is incalculable, and we're destroying it through the planetary processes fueled by greed largely that are destroying these cultures at the same time we're destroying those environments.
0: What is the the future that you would wish to to
1: see uh, evolve uh, A nice, clearly uh, condensed um, educational system around the kind of ecosystem ecology understanding that we're beginning to get through science, the science of ecology, uh, combined with the, the, the wisdom of the indigenous peoples that have a unique wisdom about their local natural systems, And then the third component is the experiential component where we bring the immersion in nature, the equivalent of a contemporary vision quest like a nature quest or a sacred passage, which gives people the experiential wisdom of being connected to their local system, natural system, and and the larger system of the earth itself. Mm -hmm. If we have that as a a core point of, of educational transformation, the next step is to have some exemplary models of successful uh, regional systems like a watershed, where a lot of energy goes into building that model out so it can shine as an example of how a successful harmoniously functioning ecologically and socially system can work. What it looks like, how it works economically, how it works uh, in terms of the moral and ethical principles that are within it and experientially, how it works as a, as, a, as a model for how young people can begin to engage in being part of this broader natural system. But we need concrete models of um, bringing together the renewable energy processes, organic agriculture, uh, effective materials, recycling, so we're and I constantly trying to go out and mine new stuff, but we, we have a really refined recycling system within the within the example of the, or whatever model we create. And ideally if we had uh, good materials recycling, we had good renewable energy, providing the ma- great majority, the vast majority of the energy production. And we had a um, educational system that was based upon the kind of things we were talking about before, a contemporary vision quest like experience. For leaders and for young people, especially, if we brought the and and we also had a way of honoring and tapping into the indigenous wisdom for that region, so we began to apply that in our leg- in our regional example. If we had clear examples of this kind of functioning and, that we can point to and people can go to it to learn from and be inspired by, and then other communities would see that hey, this is working. Maybe we need to move in a similar direction. If you look at organic agriculture and how it's spread from being a fairly small movement to now being a widespread movement, almost everybody is interested in in better health and looking into a a life with less pesticides and and, and artificial fertilizers and the health impacts of all those things. That's spread through example. I worked in Illinois for a number of years, and uh, I learned that the the best way that the local farmers there began to learn about how to shift from a corn soybean, huge, massive agricultural complex into one that was more organically based was that people were, are beginning to demand those kinds of products. And actually when I went to some of the better organic farms based on the uh, Rudolf Center model, they were actually able to build, add an inch and a half of soil over a 40 year period whereas their neighbors were, had already lost over a 100-year period, about uh, half of the 36 inches of virgin topsoil that those lands were, were blessed with. So we need regional examples of a healthy, functioning human relationship to nature, and ideally based on a watershed approach. And then... Uh, When we have those examples, they become models for other areas to begin to learn from within a larger region that's similar. And um, that would be my vision for how we could begin to shift into a much more positive relationship with the rest of life. Mm -hmm. And, of course, along with that, we need to make sure we are protecting a lot of naturally wild and, um, and pristine areas where the biodiversity of the these places can continue to unfold in their own way, under their own control, not being managed by humans.
0: From your perspective, has these um, recent experiences that we've gone through everywhere connected to the COVID-19 helped us to wake up a little bit uh, or enough to to act faster? Or
1: what do you think? I think it's it's pointed out the fragility of Hmm. modern... uh, highly centralized systems, it's no accident that nature is so decentralized and regionalized. Mm. When you have a highly decentralized system uh, based on renewable energy at the local level, Mm. that is far more resistant to things like uh, 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 a threat to national security from some foreign power trying to come in and knock out your power grid, for example. If your energy production system is highly decentralized and localized, it's very difficult for an enemy to come in and knock you out. Mm -hmm. This is a major concern, I'm sure, of many of our national security agency concerns right now, and should be, Mm -hmm. because these highly decentralized systems are very secure, far more secure than a highly centralized system, which is vulnerable to an attack. Uh, In the same way, if you have a pandemic or or some kind of a disease, um, it in part arises from the uh, massive uh, disruption of the natural systems. Many diseases come out of the imbalance Mm -hmm. of natural systems in that region. And then the emergence of these diseases comes from the instability of the natural system of that area. And then they can split Spread planetarily. Uh, these are some concerns that we should be paying more attention to in the future. Um, and again, I come back to that we need to look at ways that we can not just always go back to the highly centralized system of producing a, an answer to these challenges of modern times, but we go back to nature and look to how nature, what she has done in creating these highly decentralized localized systems, of local ecosystems, local natural systems, which help to maintain overall a fabric that maintains great stability, harmony, and balance. We need to learn that lesson Mm -hmm. and apply it to our cultures and -hmm. economies.
0: And what would you say are like the long-term solutions for business um, that, that you believe in?
1: Well, as I mentioned earlier, because of the the immensity of the challenges that face us, mm. each one of those challenges has a creative, is a creative invitation at a certain level, to come up with a new approach to come back into harmony with the overall functioning of the larger the larger biosphere and local ecosystems. So once people have tapped into the creative insight that is in part infused from nature itself then they'll begin to start creating economic opportunities for new industries new technologies uh, new innovations which are going to be part of new economies and new new sales new um, new products and um, and new income streams and all we need is a little bit improved vision so again having the vision quest as part of our culture we help produce that vision.
0: What makes it so difficult, do you think, for leaders in business to have a clear vision of where they want to go beyond you know, just delivering, of course, you a know, sound and relevant business model and profit? But what makes it uh, difficult to paint and to see that kind of future vision how, for themselves and for their company that they're running how they could contribute?
1: Well, there there are not very many good models of other ways to go Hmm. along the lines of what we've been talking about. Hmm. So they're held within a very narrow frame of of, uh, how they can function classically. Hmm. And if they had a broader, people talk about being out of the box. Well, if you really want to get out of the box, get out of human culture for a while and learn directly from nature, experientially. When you're out of the box like that, then very creative new insights are a possibility. Mm. Mostly leaders are in a very tight little box with very narrow mm. guidelines of how to live within that box. It's almost impossible to come up with the clear visions for a new way of going and being and working with their company. I'm kind of a specialist in bringing people out of the box mm. and into a new kind of relationship with possibilities. Mm. I've seen that again and again and again.
0: But just uh, I'm just curious if you have an example that uh, comes into mind, uh, you know what what kind of like vision, for example, or or ideas, or and so on. Do they come out with after such an encounter in in nature?
1: One of the better examples that I've seen some years ago, I worked with an energy company that was one of the larger fossil fuel energy companies in the world. And with a couple of my friends, associates, we took them through a, a process in, uh, in the Pyrenees, basically the way of nature process. And at the end of that, their goal when they went in was to shift from being the fourth or fifth largest company in the world to being maybe number three in the world. My personal hope was that they would come out of their experience uh, with a renewed experience of being part of the family of life and a much bigger uh, vision of what they could do as a large energy company. They came back out, and some of those the individuals within that company, I'm not going to mention the name, but some of the individuals had a brand new vision for that large global company. Others... Kind of fell back into the old patterns of, of uh, fossil fuel emphasis. But over time, it took decades, but slowly over time, I watched as, that, as some of the shifts that occurred in leadership within that company began to very gently move the company into being more of a company that was based on uh, being an energy company, including renewables, as a made, major part of what they could do with their massive resources. It, but it took decades later to watch that, that process of transformation occur. But the seeds were planted with that one vision quest experience that they all went through together um, many years prior. So sometimes these things do take, take time. In other cases, the transformation is very rapid. Often on an individual basis, if, if an individual is going through a, uh, asking questions about, the authenticity of uh, what their company is doing and they go through an experience like this, they may come out and come up with some radical new ideas about how to shift that company in, in a new direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a small kind of humorous example of this it was a few years ago I was in Brazil as we're working with a wonderful company down there called Natura. And uh, they they work with a lot of cosmetics and they try to base a lot of their their cosmetics on uh, nature based um, components in, in the cosmetics so that are all largely organic and from the local system, natural systems of Brazil. So, when I arrived there, I noticed that I was basically providing the process that I've described here before to many of the leaders in that company. And uh, I noticed as I came in that they had signs up saying, uh, please stay off the grass. And of course, one of the first things I did with the with, with the group was take them out outside and made sure they had some direct contact with the earth. So as I when I finished my work there uh, in that company, I think it, it helped them in many ways deepen uh, their relationship to nature, and also they began to become much more engaged with the preservation of the rainforest, the Brazilian rainforest. Which were really the source of many of their organic materials and products that they were developing. Um, but as I left, uh, they sent over a representative from the company, who then uh, showed me a little, handed me a little picture. Uh, as I was about getting ready to board the plane, and the picture, and it was a picture of the entrance to the to, to the company's, I mean, headquarters. And in the pictures, in the foreground, there's a beautiful grassy meadow there. And there's a big sign sticking in the middle of the grass saying, please take a moment to step on the grass and enjoy walking on the grass. (laughs) Wonderful. We've found, those of us that have been working in these fields, that one of the most powerful ways to reduce inflammation caused by a lot of engagement with digital technology, novel electromagnetic fields, cell phones, computers, what have you. One of the most effective ways to reduce the inflammatory effects of all those novel fields, which our biology never was constructed for, is to go out and spend 20 minutes, half an hour, maybe even better an hour if you can, just barefoot on the grass, maybe during a lunch break. Mm. Simple. Mm. One of the most anti-inflammatory things you can do. Isn't that amazing?
0: Yeah, it's amazing. So, in Mo, I mean, where I live, at least in Italy, and Sweden, for example, um, for five months a year, you can you can do that without freezing. But uh... you're lucky. <laughs> <laughs> We're lucky. So, John, if if you would assume that you have all doors open to you and all resources available. Um, what would you immediately rush to change and innovate right now?
1: I think the first thing I would do is to put a massive commitment of resources into creating those regional models I talked about earlier. I feel that we're so far down the rabbit hole right now, environmentally on the planet, that in order to give people guidance, we're, we're entering in a period, into a period of massive crisis. We're going to see destabilization in many of the world's cities because many of them are coastal. We're going to see between uh, moderate rises of eight feet to massive rises of all of Antarctica releases plus Greenland. We're talking about over 200 feet of sea level rise. Mm. Think about it. So um, and that's just one impact. I haven't talked about many of the other ones at all. So we're into a period, entering into a period of radical destabilization. We are going to need concrete examples of how to live harmoniously with the rest of life. The best way to to give people guidance is to have clear examples of where that's working on a regional, bi-regional basis around the planet. I, I think I'd probably re- replace the earlier word bi-regional with eco-regional basis. We need to set up a a series of these model or example exemplary uh, harmoniously functioning watershed models and urban models and farming models in each major ecoregion of the planet. If we had that, then local populations from the region would be inspired. They see that was working, that many of the problems that were afflicting them and their neighbors were not happy in that area, that these were providing a kind of uh, example of where the way to go that would be very inspiring and it would very quickly catalyze mm-hmm. a shift towards a much more harmonious and ecologically sustainable and balanced harmonious type of lifestyle and economy. Mm-hmm. So I think I would commit a lot of the resources towards that. And together with that, I would include having a massive revision of the educational process. so we every child had an opportunity to choose to do a vision quest or a, a contemporary style vision quest in their home bioregion or ecoregion. That would bring about, from the inside out, a natural inner wisdom which would become, come into, just through their natural creative tapping into, into spirit and nature. And they would begin to receive wisdom that would contribute to that harmonious relationship with their home ecoregion. We have to start doing things like that. And I would, uh, of course, recommend the same thing for existing leaders that are already adults. They're in positions with great responsibility. Many of the great uh, spiritual leaders, I'll give you an example. I've been working for, uh, on a fairly regular basis with a group of Native Americans in Colombia, in the high mountains of Colombia. Uh, they're a pretty well known tribe these days called the Kogi. Many of their elders are called Mamos, they're very evolved spiritual leaders. They spend in some cases, uh, almost a decade, in other cases, several decades, underground in caves, having an experience of deep communion with Mother Earth. When they come out of that experience of either one or two two decades long, roughly, they become the leaders of the culture because they contain the inherent wisdom of of Mother Earth and what is needed for Mother Earth and have to come into right relationship with Mother Earth. Imagine if we had a very gentle version of that in the ecoregions of the planet where modern contemporary leaders had that experience of deep bonding with the earth and with themselves, the outer nature, with, with true nature, and with the inner nature aspects of themselves. It would completely revolutionize the kind of behavior of leaders, basically becoming from a totally different place. It would also replace the contemporary goals of greed, avarice, and power as the main motivations for leadership and uh, that's what I would do.
0: So is there any extra kind of piece of advice that you would love to give to the leaders that are listening to this right now?
1: Uh, <clears throat> yeah. Take a little time to uh, take a break from, from whatever entity or organization or role you're working in, either in family or in organization. And just go out and start spending a little quiet time alone in the woods or in the mountains or along the coast. Uh, Have fun. You know, this life is meant to be enjoyed, not to be uh, a painful experience. Uh, The basic rule of life is to enjoy it. The purpose of being here is to enjoy this amazing gift of this lifetime. And fortunately, at least what we found through the way of nature process, people come out radiant from their deep immersion in nature their eyes glowing. It looks like 100,000 light bulbs have been lit up from the inside and uh, there's radiant beings. And they went in often kind of heavy stooped shoulders, uh, bent down by their workplace, bent down by demands of, of culture and family sometimes. But they come out invariably radiant and lit up now, you can do a lot of that on your own. You don't necessarily have to come to a sacred passage or do a way of nature program for that. Just go out, spend a little quiet time in nature, find a special spot that you feel drawn to. Go there, honor it with your love and your appreciation and respect. Try to find a place that's away from other people and just spend a little quiet time there and, do, and spend a little time giving your love and your, your joy and your wonderful experience back to nature as a kind of thanksgiving. And then stay open to listening to what nature might like to communicate to you, just through the the feelings and the senses that are becoming more open. Drop thinking a lot. Drop naming everything, and just experience directly, without names or attaching a lot of brands to what you're what you're experiencing. Stay very open instead of very clear. Open uh, awareness in a state of silence inner um inner peace and inner spaciousness with a very still body. Just take a little time each 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 week to do that. For better yet, every day. I do that every day.
0: How could you share a little bit how does your day to day look like unless you're away for a, on on one of the retreats, so to say?
1: Well After I finish chatting with you today, one of the first things I'm going to do is go up. I'm going to have a little little bite to eat, have a bit of lunch. And then I'm going to go up to uh, our sacred land sanctuary, which is a preserved area of close to 500 acres, uh, which preserves a lot of old Native American sacred sites. I'm going to go there and select a place. I have a number of places that I love to go and sit and be Mm -hmm. and commune, find one that draws me for that day and just go there and be quiet and let my body be very still and let the inner spaciousness of being unfold in communion with that spot. And I'll probably spend a couple of hours up there and I'll come back and then engage in the busyness of trying to help the way of nature become a more global process.
0: Thanks, thanks for sharing that John. Uh, what about you? If you could give a piece of advice to yourself maybe 30 years ago or something like that. uh, What would that be?
1: Don't be so impatient about having uh, human beings come back into balance Hmm. with nature.
0: What do you think is the absolutely most important thing for companies to focus on right now beyond, obviously, their impact on, on the climate?
1: Well, I think one of the invitations right now is to uh, look at how do we start creating organizations and companies that are working not just for profit for the shareholders, but also working to bring something of great benefit to the environment and to culture. Mm-hmm. And to ask that question of, of each of our Organizations and companies, how can we bring something to the table that's really contributing to a greater uh, and more balanced whole? It's a really good question to ask. It's true for us personally, too. How we make our investments, where do we, you know, I invest in a number of stocks and I I think about it very carefully before I make an investment.
0: Yeah, in in every possible way, how do we all contribute in our daily lives as well? And what do we, Invest our time and 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 energy into and all of that, right? Yeah.
1: At the end of life, obviously, it always comes up. If your life is devoted really just to making money and mm-hmm. be successful in that fashion, uh, or accumulating a lot of personal power, in almost all cases, that's experienced as a as a regretful lifetime as people are getting ready to pass on because their life didn't really make. Big difference in making the world a better place. Hmm. <laughs> Those who dedicate themselves to making the world a better place to be pass on from this lifetime in a much, in a, in a state of great completion and satisfaction.
0: And in that sense, it would be wonderful if more of us could um, understand the purpose of why we are here as early as possible in life, uh, as you did when you were just seven. And then, uh, for me, it took, uh, I don't know, 30 years or something before I, I, I got it. <laughs> so, um, uh, but that, that's, that's why, as you say, education and all of that would, um, matter a lot if it would help us if not during education then even I'm I'm considering even companies uh where people spend eight ten or more hours a day sometime that's also a fantastic container where uh people can be um inspired educated and so on yes, as well
1: yes exactly
0: mm-hmm.
1: I think uh, reconfiguring how companies actually operate and function is another big uh, creative opportunity and Usually, when people are really happy and joyful and working together as a as a joyful team, the creativity and the success of that of that that entity is far beyond anything that's running according to the old kind of Protestant ethic type of rule system.
0: So, John, what what transformational points in your life have influenced you the most? You've obviously had very very many, but just share a few.
1: Well, I'd say one of them would be. Uh, uh, some years ago, uh, I found myself struck by lightning at night. I was actually helping uh, dedicate a sacred site in New York State, near where my dad had died from a drowning incident in a, along the Delaware River. I was helping. I went up many years later to dedicate some land that a friend of mine had purchased and wanted to have dedicated it as permanently preserved land which he felt was very, very sacred, so I wanted to go and support him in that. And at the end of that dedication ceremony, I went back to where I was staying, and the lightning bolt came through the window, struck me, and I was uh, instantly uh, killed, and my spirit ejected from my body, and I went through the classical tunnel that I'm sure you've heard about, from other people who've had death experiences and then were brought back somehow, usually medically. But in my case, I was alone. I shot through this tunnel, went into a state of absolutely brilliant, clear, luminous white light, and um, was kept there for about six hours. I know it was six hours because when, um, and of course, medically, that's impossible. If you're brain dead for... for, um, more than a matter of minutes, usually there's permanent brain damage or, or death. So I don't have an explanation of, for that part of it at worked medically. But in any case, I was in this absolutely clear light of formless uh, spaciousness and luminosity, and then uh, brought back from that, back through the tunnel, feet first, and back into my body, which now is sitting in the room where I had been struck by lightning. I was sitting on the bed, cross-legged and I was looking out the window of the room I was in and the, it felt like my body kind of reformed itself or I, I reformed myself inside the body in this new position on the bed. And, uh, the, I found that the light that I had come out of was now the Venus, the morning star. And, uh, And my eyes were still fixed on that light, but now I realized I was looking at Venus. And it was dawn. And it was just the first bit of light beginning to appear in the morning sky with Venus. I'm sure you've all seen them, the morning star. Uh, It's the center point of my, the focus of my eyes. So it's kind of a magical event. I don't really have an explanation for that. Uh, I sometimes now look back on it as a gift of being directly introduced to the state that we all experience after death as a gift for this lifetime to be a benefit to others as a teacher. I find it's easier to be able to transmit and share uh, some of the deeper levels of our true natures after that experience. And um, it definitely shifted my, my life profoundly and it helped me understand much better the experience of liberation that many of the great teachers Report like the Buddha or Christ or many of the great masters that appeared in virtually all cultures there are a couple other ones too but that's probably enough
0: wow (laughs) John I've never (laughs) I I just know one more person actually that has had a similar experience that have told me about it and it sounds as as amazing and incredible as this one and uh, it all sums up into as you say it's a you it's just a immense gift in it Um, and for
1: a purpose i think to help really the purpose being to help others
0: Mm. yeah exactly yeah so that is the main question that we should all ask ourselves what can i how can i contribute how can i help as many people as possible given who i am and my passion and talents and and everything yep yeah
1: exactly Mm. yep exactly i'd love to hear your story sometime.
0: yes Thank you, John. um, Thanks so much for sharing that uh, special experience. Just as a final question to you, what do you think the world needs most at this time then?
1: One of the things that would be really good to, to open a little bit more in these times is really to begin to tap into the natural, unconditional love that lies at the heart of our Our deepest level of being, and to drop some of the judgmentalism. Mm. It feels like many of our modern culture's behavior has become very judgmental. Mm. The more we've dropped into digital reality and technology, uh, you know, the meta—the change from Facebook Facebook from it's um, it's just as Facebook focused the meta. Uh, is a little concerning because when we start uh, replacing this lifetime or filling this lifetime with possession with digital lifetimes, with digital reality, we start to move in the direction that Aldous Huxley uh, portrayed in his famous book, Brave New World. You remember he had a, a section in there where the feelings became the, the tool of those that were trying to accumulate massive amounts of power. And the feelies were a way to distract the average folks so that they could take over whatever they wanted to take over without any interference. And the feelies, which engaged every single sense, not just sight and sound like we have now, but the sense of touch, the sense of smell, the sense of taste as well. And and of course, we're starting to move in that direction with our digital technologies. Who knows if we fully manifest the feelies of Brave New World or not, but we are so embedded in that digital world. And most of those digital worlds are filled with aggression, judgment, uh, uh, highly polarized kinds of existence for entertainment purposes, that we're losing the human capacity to be loving, compassionate, and heartful in our relationships with each other and with nature. So I'd say one of the most important things we can start doing is discovering, once again, the inner natural compassion that arises and and unconditional loving kindness that naturally arises when we begin to touch deeply into who we really are Mm -hmm. and return to that. And maybe uh, drop a little bit of this obsession with the digital world, which is more and more occupying most of our, our living time these days. And go easy on the judgment. We really, uh, be really good to let go of some of that stuff and and just experience the beautiful, natural flow of life in a kind of uh, uncontrived way. In China, they called that kind of a flow of life Uwei, spelled W U W E I, but pronounced Uwei, meaning uncontrived action, effortless action. With, a, with built into it a kind of natural expression of joy and a lack of judgment and branding things as good or bad all the time. And just a a state of, of joy and unconditional love for the gifts of this precious lifetime we have.
0: Beautiful. Thank you so much, John. And I'm thinking about, for example, my son who is 21. And, uh, you know, when you, when you see... I mean, even we do do it, but but we are watching and checking the phone, I don't know, 85 times on average day because of different reasons and so on. But what do we say to the, this young generation? What kind of advice would you, you know, give them or inspiration uh, so that, as you say, they also tap into this kind of more deeper sense of who they are in the midst of everything?
1: Well, I love the idea of coming up with... Um, uh half a dozen things you can do in each day that really mm-hmm. makes somebody else's day better. Really doing something that shows your, your love and your care for others, including plants, animals, and nature.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh if we each had half a dozen things each day that made life better for those other beings, our life would change profoundly.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It'd be a simple thing for young people to start exploring infertiles.
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful, uh, beautiful reminder. Or actually, yeah, I, I will definitely uh, suggest that to my to my son and his friends uh, as a as a new uh, beautiful habit.
1: Yeah. I have a bunch of these crazy little expressions that have come through over time. One is, why settle for virtual reality? This is one. Another one is, speed wastes time. And one I'm using a lot these days is, make habit your friend.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Which applies here to this, what we were just talking
0: Mm about. Mm -hmm. Beautiful, beautiful. But what about the second one then, uh, with the speed? How are people reacting to that one?
1: It's kind of interesting that the faster you go, the less aware you are of what's going on at a certain Mm -hmm. level. I'm a teacher of one of the things I teach is something called Tai Chi Chuan or Tai Chi. And uh, the practice of Tai Chi, you've probably seen people doing it in in the park. They do it a lot in China, but more and more in the States and Europe too. And one of the beautiful things about Tai Chi is it's done very, very slowly So as you move your your body in that very, very slow speed, you become intimately aware of where all the blockages, obscurations, uh, tensions, uh, contractions, lie within initially your physical body. And you then learn how to release those blockages and obscurations and become more flowing. And then that opens up a capacity to be more in that type of experience of a beautiful, spontaneous flow of
0: life. It would be so nice if all of these things would be, as you say, like integrated into our, into our life uh, through edu- the education yeah. and everywhere, so it becomes a natural part of our evolution during a lifetime rather than... Absolutely. So that that we all need to take responsibility, of course uh but but still that it's more like presented to us uh at an earlier stage in a good way, so it becomes natural no.
1: Yeah, that would be true education yeah universe university level yeah.
0: how was it to be on the podcast, John?
1: oh, I love it. you have a a beautiful way of uh gently uh connecting with deep questions and kind of helping lift them out. Thank
0: you. Thank you so much, John. Thanks for sharing. Uh, And to find out more, uh, you will find links and show notes on uh, corporateunplug.com. And remember to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast app and share this episode with people you know would benefit from hearing John. Please rate and review this podcast if you enjoyed it. And thank you so, so much for listening. And until next time, live with purpose and remember to unplug. Ciao. Ciao, John. Great.